As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? You've got a ton of people and record amount of climate tech people coming on. I mean, if you do a little bit of scratch and sniff on probably half of the companies in the startup world that say they're climate tech, Many of them had nothing to do with climate 12 months ago and have just found something to now claim that they're helping be more sustainable. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we are talking about carbon co2 and specifically how you measure it because of course climate climate tech these are very big themes these days especially out here but missing in all of the hullabaloo is a rather key element how do you measure carbon footprint if you're a company organization especially those saying we're going to clean ourselves up but this is not something that most people think about so virtually the entire s&p 500 have come out in the last year to two years with net zero targets, all claiming, okay, we are going to go fully green, no net CO2 emissions from our operations. Yet there is not one defined way or standard to measure what net zero actually looks like, how far away these companies are from getting there. What do they need to get there? Um, It's kind of a crazy situation, and perhaps not surprisingly, there's a bunch of companies diving into this world to try to get to the bottom of what you know we now call carbon accounting to help companies figure out how bad they are and the best ways to get better. And that is what this week's guest is doing. Kentaro Kawamori is the founder of Persephone, which is a two-year-old company that raised uh, just raised more than $100 million in a Series B round to build up its proprietary carbon accounting system, which is it is then selling on to big companies, um, companies big and small. So this is another kind of picks and shovels type company making tools that people need to operate in this new world. And Kentaro, uh, he has a very different background. He was an army brat, bounced around the world. He's a professional gamer. He got through uni in less than a year by actually going to three unis at once, which is, sounds insane to me. One college was plenty for me. Um... And then he started this company after a stint in the oil and gas industry. So he has just a great perspective on where this industry is, where it's going, and really the key kind of central role that regulators and the world's top fund managers are playing in this transition. So it's just a fascinating look at what is happening in this very kind of hot, interesting area of the economy, really from the perspective of a company that is, at only two years, growing very fast and right in the middle of the mix. So, 
That is this week's pod, and I will now hand you over so we can get going with my conversation with Kentaro Kawamori, the founder of Persephone. Enjoy. Where to start? So, you know, a lot of uh, listeners of this podcast will kind of have seen that increasingly a lot of the guests we have on here are in climate tech because one, I think it's one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting place to be right now and where a lot of the most interesting ideas and talented people are going. And also it's, you know, kind of a big deal uh, these days in terms of problems to solve. I'd love to get a sense of, you know, kind of just very high level and then we can kind of get into the other layers of it, but you know, who you are and how you, what, what Persephone, is it Persephone? Am I saying yep, that right? You got it. Nailed it. What Persephone is and kind of how you got here to this point. Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks again for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Kentaro Kawamori, co-founder and CEO of Persephone, and we are an enterprise SaaS company and we've built a carbon accounting and climate management platform. So what that means is our software helps companies calculate their carbon footprints, disclose it to relevant parties, but then also, of course, you know, track their footprint and reduce it over time. Why? Why did you start the company? And when did you start the company? We started in January 2020. Uh, and you know, really simply around that whole adage, uh, you can't manage what you measure is sort of the, the biggest trope in our business. But yeah. it's very true. The practice is called carbon accounting. It's no different than financial accounting from that perspective. And what were you doing before this? What kind of, where did you first see that this was a problem? I first saw the problem when I was the chief digital officer at Chesapeake Energy, which was at the time, actually still today, one of the largest natural gas producers in the country. And this is, uh, that's Aubrey McClendon. May he rest in peace, correct? That's right. That sounds like you got some background there. Yeah, I, I covered energy for a decade back in the when I was in London. So, oh, so we can definitely talk all things Chesapeake and Aubrey. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, and of course, I also love basketball, and he was the owner of the OKC Thunder. I have uh, some great fond memories of being able to sit uh, courtside next to uh, Russell really? Westbrook and some folks because, to your point, we sponsored the arena. So, we had ticket lotteries for that experience. It was amazing. That's awesome. Um, so, what does a chief digital officer do at a big? Well, they're not big oil, but they're big oil, big gas company do. Yeah, mostly gas. Um, they had, you know, some oil exposure. It's funny how the tide turns is like, you know, wanted to get more oil exposure and then oil went out of vogue and then it was all about being a gas company as is in vogue today. Yeah. So basically I had the IT function uh, as well as responsibility over digitizing a very manual and mechanical based business that, you know, back in. 2017 and even today you know people are still putting paper tickets in mailboxes in the middle of texas to, to <laughs> you know pass invoices back and forth right 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 and so you were at chesapeake when 2016 to 2018 uh, because i was at accenture as a consultant doing work for chesapeake and other large energy firms and then that's ultimately how i landed at chesapeake and so what was the thing that you saw there that you're like, oh, this is a problem that obviously that is painful for Chesapeake, a big gas company, but is painful for others as well. So it was a, it was a couple of things. Uh, the impetus was really when BP's shareholder meeting every year, you would have environmentalists yep. parties show up and they'd say, hey, disclose your footprint, you know, lower your carbon footprint, get, a, get out of the oil and gas business. And 
2017 was really the first noticeable year that those shareholder resolutions started gaining some support. Yeah. And this is still early days. Like you're talking about going from like 1% support to like 6%, but it was a noticeable uptick. And so I started really looking into, you know, what does it take to calculate a footprint? We were already doing some of it because there's 11 heavily regulated industrial industries, according to the EPA, started in 2011. They had to start disclosing some portion of their footprint from those activities, including oil and gas. And, you know, long story short, my job was was to create efficiency and obviously digitize the business and found this to be an extremely manual consultant-led process that absolutely couldn't scale if the requirements were to scale. But how do you get from that point to, okay, I'm going to quit and actually start a business? I mean, had you done this before or do you come from an entrepreneurial family? I mean, how did how'd you get there? Yeah, definitely a little bit of an entrepreneurial family. Um, my uh, background is pretty global and diverse, uh, but also in between Chesapeake and starting Persephone, I went to be an early stage investor uh, with the Rice Investment Group, which is a family office, private equity arm investing into early stage energy tech at the time. And so, you know, sort of seeing the genesis of the problem at Chesapeake and then, you know, getting into the venture world, thought I wanted to be an investor, realized that under no circumstance that I have the patience to be a venture investor, needed to be in there myself. Yeah, because you have to like put some money in and then wait years and years and years and hope the proverbial doesn't hit the fan. Well, even uh, even worse, if you're in my seat, you have to watch everybody else doing the cool stuff. <laughs> so I had to get in the ring. Um, but Persephone, yeah. uh, my, my second venture-backed company, the first down in Houston, still running very successfully. But this was uh, this was really the first sort of full-time foray into, you know, full-time CEO, founder CEO, SaaS type business. You say your background is quite global, international. So what is your background like? Where did you grow up and kind of because it seemed you were quite young, you're still quite young, but especially the, for the gig at, say, Chesapeake. Yeah, could you just give a brief kind of potted history of you and how you ended up here? Definitely, yeah. Uh, so born in Japan, raised in Germany, uh, and then in my teens came over to the States. And then uh, at the time, my mom had remarried and my stepdad was a GI. So, you know, did the typical military brat thing, six states, yeah. six years, that kind of thing. So, Oh, wow. So you were all over the States. All over, yeah. The fir first place I ever lived in the States was rural Alabama, which was a hell of a shock coming out of uh, Germany. Oh my goodness, wow. Yeah, and then uh, stints in Arizona, New Mexico, Hawaii, California, so the typical sort of, you know, yeah. run around. And how did you how did you end up in Germany? Uh, my mom's German, yeah, so I'm actually uh, a citizen of all three. Oh, wow. So yeah, um, and, you know, from a business perspective, always was very early to sort of the 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 crossing of digital and the business realm. I was a professional esports player before we even called it esports. Uh, oh, really? Uh, Would you play Call of Duty Four on the Xbox? And so, what was that? Because I've actually, I mean, I haven't written about Call of Duty particularly, but I've written about like Overwatch and the Overwatch League and all of these, and just like the business of esports, which I find fascinating. And some of these teams that have houses and trainers and dietitians and all that stuff. I mean, how deep in it were you? Yeah, super deep. Uh, it helps when you're you're a 16 year old at the time where that's what I would have been doing anyways. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, trading for what they now call training for 50 hours a week. We yes. was just playing the game for us 50 hours a week. Um, but it was definitely a different world. You know, you got you got kids now making, you know, a million dollars a year. And that's not even yeah like the highest paid player. And to your point, you know, they're treated like athletes because in some ways they are. Um, yeah. I, mean, I certainly think so. But 
Yeah, that was, uh, you know, to give you some perspective, this was 2006, 2007. And at the time we were over the moon if the four of us, because we did 4v4 was sort of the, the tournament yeah. format. If we won a $3,000 prize pool, which probably put us at making, I don't know, it would have been probably the equivalent of like 50 cents an hour. Big money. <laughs> all the time we put in. That was, uh, that was a spectacular achievement for us. Right, 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 right. So you were doing that for a while, and then presumably you went off to, to college? Uh, I didn't right away. Uh, I actually ended up working for Major League Gaming. So that was the, the big oh. sort of esports company at the time. Later got bought by Activision. Uh, of course, now Microsoft. I don't know if that deal is closed. But so yeah, that was sort of my first foray into large distributed digital business. So you know, I was running a team of 50 people fully remote when I was 17 before remote work was what it is today. And when you say running a team, what do you mean? What did that entail? So this was the time that professional gameplay started getting organized and st really started becoming a revenue stream for these companies. For the publishers? Uh, it wasn't the publishers yet at the time. It was third parties like Major League Gaming. I see, I see, yeah. And so it was really more like third party leagues and then that's why eventually Activision bought MLG. Yeah. But they were the first to sort of bridge into the corporate link. So we brought sponsors like Bic and Old Spice were some of the earliest and that turned into, you know, completely paid professional sort of ladders and leagues where people could actually create revenue from. Right. So the teams that I looked over were really the, the what we called the play teams, meaning in-game referees or administrators that were adjudicating and managing the operations of the actual league play. Right, right, right. So you didn't end up in like, a, you know, an 80,000 seat stadium on a stage playing against like the top guys. No, when I was doing that, uh, it would have been like, you know, 40 people in uh, a conference center at the, the Sheraton <laughs> at the cheapest possible part of town. <laughs> you missed your window, man. I, I did, but I almost went back twice and, and for various reasons I, I didn't, uh, but the, the pull was always strong. Right, right, right. So yeah, so you did that, and then what? Did not go off to college. Uh, went and learned uh, business from some great uh, small business owners. I just could not fathom wrapping my head around sitting in school all day long. Absolutely hated school mm. as a kid. Eventually ended up going back to school because some of my great mentors and advisors said, just go get your damn bachelor's degree. And then ended up doing right. that in the span of 10 months. I sort of hacked the system here in Arizona and triple enrolled in three schools and that was a pretty wild time. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. 10 months and you got a four-year degree? It, it was a lot of, uh, I guess nowadays you'd call it life hacking, but I guess I'd call it sort of academic hacking at the time. But long story short, I had to convince three deans to let me take a double course load while testing out of about half of those credits. Um, so yeah, it was pretty nuts. That doesn't sound like a fun 10 months. Uh, you know what? It, it was not fun, but it was unbelievably productive. And I truly don't believe I could have done it any other way because I'm an all or nothing kind of guy. Sounds like it. Um, and you said you got you learned from some kind of small business owners and mentors. Like what kind of businesses are you talking about? What, what were those people doing and how did you get involved? Yeah, a couple of manufacturing businesses. Um, my dad, still in Japan at the time, was running a successful real estate business, expanding into the restaurant business. Um, so I actually spent six months in Tokyo, opening up a Southern Indian restaurant in the financial district, oh, which was a blast. Yum. Yeah. There's uh, lots of stories of scraping drunk uh, salary men off the sidewalk uh, after hours. We went to Tokyo three years ago. I mean, it was fantastic. It was amazing. Japan was 
incredible. But it was, it reminded me of the UK, actually, where I lived for many years. Oh, okay. Like London specifically, yeah. Yeah, London specifically, like, you know, kind of the workday ends and then fast forward two to three hours later and there's a bunch of like red-faced men in suits who can barely stand <laughs> up. Yeah. Like, and you're like, don't fall into the train tracks. Like, like clockwork. Yes, exactly. Every day. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So I saw, I saw some of that in Tokyo as well. I was like, oh yeah, this looks familiar. Most people don't realize the, uh, the famous capsule hotels are almost exclusively visited by people who missed the train because they were too drunk. <laughs> terrible, terrible, by the way. I mean, absolutely just horrible to be spending your life like that 24 seven. No, it's, I know it's, it, it is quite sad. So you did that, you did these businesses, then you kind of fast forwarded through university and then what? Yeah, did that. And then, uh, yeah, long story short, found myself working in the solar industry in Hawaii. As you do. As you do. was doing some day trading and stuff and then um, got bored, got island fever. Have you ever heard of that concept? Yep. But they are islands in every sense of the word. Absolutely. Now, I crawled about every inch of them, like every hike, you know, kayaking path you could possibly do. It was awesome. But then decided on a whim that I would go do an MBA, uh, which was at uh, Arizona State because they afforded me flexibility to do it hybrid. Met my now wife on the first day and uh, she's a lifer at Intel. Oh, wow. And so that brought us ultimately, she said, you can live in Portland, Oregon, or you can live in Phoenix, Arizona. And I said, there's no way in hell I'm living in the dreary Pacific Northwest. So let's go to Phoenix. Right, right, right. So you did your MBA and then you ended up consulting? Not quite, um, but basically that's that's when my career in enterprise software started. So you know, that's what I've been doing you know, coming up on 10 years now. And it was, you know, at the time, pretty infrastructure focused companies like Microsoft, VMware, Red Hat, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so my specialty has always been sort of that intersection between business and technology. I'm not a trained engineer by trade, but I enjoy architecture work, um, you know, get quite technical. So I've always sort of been that bridge in between. And then that's ultimately what led me into consulting because I like doing both equally, the business side as well as the right. technical side. And so why does the world need Persephone? And I, I'm asking insofar as that like, it feels, I mean, kind of, well, as I mentioned at the top, it feels like, you know, climate tech, carbon accounting, all of these things are necessary. They're gaining traction. The world seems to have finally agreed that climate change is a problem and it needs to be dealt with urgently. But why, why do we need carbon accounting? In other words, what is the situation now with carbon accounting broadly? So it's a... It's still a very nascent practice from an adoption standpoint. The methodologies and the standards for doing it have been around for about 20 years at this point. So those are pretty well baked. Mm. But they're really. Are those, are those basically born of the kind of EU carbon trading system? Uh, actually, before that, the, it was really mm. sort of on the back of the Kyoto Protocol in the, in the 90s. Some NGOs formed and said, hey, if we're going to talk about mitigating climate change, we probably should figure out how to calculate it and then you know be able to track that. Right. So the carbon markets, to kind of go back to your question, you know why we exist and why carbon accounting is intimately tied to carbon markets, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is this sort of finite budget, right? There's this, this mm -hmm. finite amount of emissions that are left in order to avert specific climate scenarios. And so just like financial accounting, if you want to hit a specific budget, You've got to have the practices, the tools, and the capabilities to be able to understand where you're at at any given moment, which, you know, on a global level around companies, we're nowhere close to where we need to be today. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with carbon accounting until now has been a very, very niche practice, right? It was practiced by 
companies generally with a very healthy balance sheet with a need and a desire to invest into their marketing and brand first and foremost, because there was no regulatory or investor impetus for doing so. But now it's turned into, you know, investor topic number one, two or three, depending on who you're talking to and what asset class. And of course, now regulators like the SEC are coming along and saying, you know, if you're going to come out and say that you're going net zero and you're going to reduce your carbon, that's basically making a financial disclosure because that's going to cost money. Right. And you need to be able to follow standards and adhere to practices that are legitimate. And so what is it? Because it feels like regulation is a huge piece of this. And what is the state of that right now? Because uh, you mentioned this SEC, but are there kind of one or two or three new-ish standards, requirements, disclosure requirements, whatever it may be, that are kind of you know putting the wind at your back? There has uh, quite literally never been a global regulatory movement like we're seeing right now. So you've got the SEC here in the US, you've got April 1st in Japan, the Financial Services Agency, so their SEC, put their disclosure rules into effect. The FCA in the UK did the same on January 1st of this year, which is now escalating every year and through 2025. The EU Commission will publish what will undoubtedly be the most extensive and sort of most detailed disclosure regulations around this in the next couple of years. You have financial regulators in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in Australia, in New Zealand, all doing the same thing. So there's no precedence for sort of this simultaneous global movement from financial regulators, but also legislatures. So you have countries like Japan and the UK, for example, which have actually formally adopted into legislation net zero targets. So by law now, they must meet net zero right. to meet their own targets. Yeah, because it clearly, and this takes me back to like, 2006, I think before you were looking at any of this, you might have been gaming at that point. Definitely gaming at that point. <laughs> There's a guy, Lord Stern, and he did a big, he's an economist, very famous in the UK. He did a big review of the kind of carbon markets and kind of as they were then, which is pretty nascent. And he called, you know, the not accounting for carbon in your kind of business calculations was, I think he called it like the biggest market failure in history or the his, you know, the history of the markets, which was a kind of an interesting way to kind of frame it. We're 16 years later, and it feels like only now we're starting to put in that scaffolding to actually account for this as a business expense or an opportunity, depending on who you are. Is that fair? Totally. And I think that's my shtick that I sort of go out and tell people is capitalism created the climate crisis and it'll solve it. And I think it's for that exact reason why, you know, in the mid 2000s, you know, frankly, there was no reason for business leaders and businesses to put that sort of externality into their business model. The train is now approaching junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And what is your sense of how far this goes, right? So I'm thinking about, like, if you're BP or Chesapeake, it's pretty clear the product you sell, your operations, et cetera, they create a whole bunch of CO2 emissions. That seems fairly straightforward. But if you're, say, a real estate developer and you want to build a skyscraper and you're buying a bunch of cement, which is made in a very polluting way, and steel made in a very polluting way, like where does the, how granular does this get or where does the kind of the buck stop in terms of what companies have to do in terms of their responsibilities and, you know, what CO2 they're responsible for, how that and how that's divvied up. Yeah, it's going to be moving pretty quickly, but it'll move at different paces by industry to your point. So if you look at things like uh, cement, it's what we would in the industry call a, a hard to abate industry. Uh, it generally has to have, it has enormous amount of emissions, but from a pure physical science perspective is extremely difficult to do. And the same thing is true for, let's say, you know, large scale transportation. You know, how do you turn a, a, a Maersk cross oceanic liner? Yeah. It's just a different type of science. So that stuff just happens over time. And that's the same sort of economics as renewable power becoming cheaper than fossil based power in most markets. It's, it's purely just power is power. It's a commodity from that standpoint. As long as it's portable and consumable, then, you know, people will switch to it. We always say it's kind of comes down to three genuine network effects. And so the first is regulatory, you know, the regulators create that network. The second then is consumers. And you can see that from everything from all birds, right? We want sustainable sneakers to people are foregoing meat-based products because of the footprint associated with that. And then thirdly, you have, you know, competitive pressures. And so as soon as one company starts creating greener products, we saw this in the airline business, for example, in March 2020, the total of zero major U.S. carriers had a net zero target. Yeah, Delta comes out and makes the first one, and lo and behold, four weeks later, every other American carrier has one. Right, right. And so how does Persephone work? Say I'm, I don't know, Delta or whomever, and I hire you. What do you allow me to do? So there's all of the data to calculate the footprint of the company already exists within the company. And you know, essentially what carbon accounting is, is the practice of turning business activity data or financial data into carbon approximations. Because I remind everybody, you know, any form of accounting, financial or carbon is always an estimation. So there's a lot of inference and in kind of all of it. I would say it's inference by design. Um, yeah. And then it's varying levels of accuracy of inference. So there's 20 sources of emissions in the greenhouse gas protocol, which is sort of our version of gap for financial accounting tells you how to calculate it, what data to use, what the formulas are, so on and so forth. And within those 20 categories, so think everything from you know, air travel to electricity consumption to purchased goods and services, there are individual calculation methods for each of those. So for air travel, you would have a spend-based calculation, a distance-based calculation, or a fuel-based calculation. And essentially companies need to use whatever best available data there is. Mm. But in the air travel example, um, you and I as individual travelers, if we go to American Airlines and say, tell us how much fuel you used from this flight to LA to New York, good luck. They're never going to tell us that, right? That's info that you could use to you know, come up with their profitability and all that sort of stuff. But we can use distance-based or spend-based calculations 
but of course that's where they become more or less accurate. Right, right. So you started in January 2020. I presume you came up with a deck. And so how did you go about raising your first round of funding and how did that go? So we were really fortunate. The the group of investors that we uh, invested with at Rice Investment Group were our first. So who is Rice Investment Group? I've never heard of that. You said it's a family office. Is it uh, the Rice family? Yeah. So it's four. four, (laughs) It is the Rice family. uh, Four highly successful brothers from Boston uh, started a company called Rice Energy that was natural gas company uh, out of the Mm. Marcella Shale in the Northeast. Oh, okay. That was 2008. And by 2015, IPO'd the company. By 2017, sold it to EQT, which then merged into Rice Energy and became the largest net gas producer in the world. Got you. So one of the brothers still runs that company. The others uh, are full-time investors. I see. So they were our very first investor and, you know, led both our seed and our series A. And so, you know, crazy visionary entrepreneurs themselves, you know, extremely sophisticated understanding of the energy ecosystem. And so they, they saw this from a different lens, you know, the Mm. greater investing market in 2020 had almost no clue what was meant by climate tech or carbon accounting at the time. You know, it's funny how quickly things shift. People weren't using the word climate tech yet then. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was, we had somebody else on this pod, Dave Friedberg, and he is backing a bunch of kind of big swings in climate tech. He actually founded the Climate Corp and sold it to Monsanto for a billion dollars many years ago. But he, he has set up this, what he's, it's called the production board, and they kind of incubate these different companies. And one of their big backers is the Koch family, who are obviously coal oil, natural gas, et cetera. And it just struck me. I was like, oh, that's really interesting that that family in particular, I mean, they have funded kind of climate science denial, which is a separate universe. But even just this idea that you have this family who's made billions in fossil fuels is now being like, okay, we're going to back a bunch like this next generation of stuff, which in his case would obviate some of the businesses that this family has made their fortune on. But it sounds like the Rice family is in, at least thinking in, in along similar lines, big time, uh, and they're not the only ones. I would say they're they're definitely the leaders. They're they've been way ahead. Um, you know, for example, they IPO'd uh, the largest renewable natural gas company in the country in 2021. So literally capturing fugitive gas from landfills that would have just gone into the atmosphere and yeah. repurposing it. The, the the methane. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You know, 25 times more carbon intensity than CO2. So they've been doing that. I mean, they probably have, I would say, five more investments in the energy transition space. So if you talk to them, they'll tell you, you know, if you're going to call it an energy transition, you have to be truly believe that the economy on a global level is reconfiguring to be one that uses electrons uh, first and foremost. Uh, And so that, you know, is the entire modern world is built on the back of fossil fuels. And there's an enormous amount of new businesses and transitions that have to be made. So they were your Series A and your seed. And then last is about six months ago, eight months ago, you raised a whole boatload of money to put it technically. Yeah, it was a, uh, depending on the size of the boat, um, uh, it was a $101 million (laughs) series B that we uh, held second close on in uh, October of last year. And so presumably that was easier. I mean, I guess you'd had by that point kind of proof of concept and had some clients or, you know, how, how was that process? Because in that round, you brought in a whole bunch of new people. Yeah, I would uh, I would definitely not tell you that raising 100 million bucks is easy, uh, regardless of market <laughs> environment. Uh, so I won't go on the record saying that. But yeah, to your point, 2020 was really hardcore R&D for us. Right? We had to figure out and invent some, some really sophisticated ways to put multiple accounting systems into one system of record. Mm. 
2021 was then that year of searching for PMF, product market fit. So, you know, we had a couple dozen customers throughout that year, really refining the product, getting feedback and all that. So it was sort of towards the end of that. There was, you know, there was enough signal at that point on where this was headed, not just from a product perspective, but in the market. The regulators were were moving. Uh, and then, you know, this year is really all about commercialization and expansion for us. And do companies actually need this right now? In other words, it feels like until the regulations are like airtight that, you know, if I am a big company with a sprawling portfolio of assets all over the world, like I kind of want to close my eyes and put my fingers in my ears until I absolutely am not allowed to do that anymore. Because it feels like it's just going to be a cost. No? It's definitely a cost. Uh, there's no two ways about it, right? But it's a necessary cost. Um, so you have really two types of companies that are doing this today, not counting the regulatory side, because you know, let's say, for example, in the US, that's still in process. But the first is companies that have made this commitment, which is now 92% of the S&P 500. So you've now made this commitment publicly, and you don't have a good, efficient way to actually account for this and get. So, them. why have they all done that? Is it competitive pressure? Because it feels like to me, if ninety-two percent of the S and P five hundred have done this, and these are capitalist enterprises, they're proactively being like, "We're about to make a public declaration that's going to make our lives harder." Exactly. So that comes to the second point, which is which is really the impetus for all of it, uh, and which was really the core of our thesis from the beginning was that investor pressure would drive disclosure, and. It's really a domino effect if you look at the capital chain. So the left-leaning, most influential constituent LPs out there, California teachers' pension funds, Canadian pension funds, uh, university endowments, in the last 24 months, some of the most influential at their annual meetings passed resolutions that require them to collect climate information from their asset managers. So they now go to the BlackRocks of the world, the Fidelities, the Bain Capitals, the TPGs. And then the asset manager in the middle is now faced with this new conundrum in that in order for them to understand what their financed emissions are, so their product is capital, so their footprint doesn't come from burning stuff, it comes from providing capital to other people that do, they now have to go to those companies to go gather that. So what happened was this domino effect. So many of our closest customers, for example, are private equity firms that then rely on us to work with their portfolio companies to help them do their carbon accounting and consolidate that. And so say you're, you know, private equity company X, we hire you, you go work your magic, you come back, okay, here is your CO2 footprint. And then what happens? You know, because that's the other thing, right? It's like, okay, cool. You're measuring all of this stuff. And then, but again, all of these markets are pretty nascent in terms of, you know, abatement and how you finance that and everything else. Like what, what is the next step after measurement or what are you seeing once people get this information? Yeah. So phase one is almost always, you know, calculate and disclose. And then the second phase is really decarbonize. And that takes, you know, years and decades. And the Pareto principle almost always applies in carbon emissions. Pareto principle? 80% of your emissions are going to come from about 20% of your activities. Right. And so going through that exercise immediately surfaces where most of their emissions are coming from, which they didn't have before, which then allows them to make drastic changes to their capital plans. An easy example might be if you're Amazon or FedEx, probably pretty obvious where your emissions are coming from. It's from your delivery vans and your air fleet. Yep. And so you've got to electrify those. But if you're a real estate company, for example, you know now you see actually the footprint created by electricity consumption. Whereas you might have weighed 
energy efficiency investments in your buildings as sort of nice to have. Now you have both a cost efficiency and an energy efficiency and a carbon efficiency reason to go do those things. And so it, it is surfacing the necessary data for these companies to actually decarbonize. And then to your point, absolutely the carbon credit and offset and removal markets are, are growing like bonkers because there's just a whole bunch of stuff you can't do quickly. And so how do you utilize capital to make investments and offset wherever possible? Though that's its own whole can of worms in terms of quality, availability, reliability, all of that. I'm curious, but I think it was about a year ago, Exxon lost this big proxy fight with, uh, what are they called? Third engine number one. Engine number one. Yep. Yeah. And for those who don't know, uh, engine number one was started by this hedge fund billionaire, very, very successful and his whole kind of pitch to Exxon, um, which is like the poster child for big oil was like, you need to start accounting for the kind of green transition, your carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. And he launched this fight and basically won and got uh, I think it was two seats on the board. Anyway, that felt like a moment, at least from my point of view, but I'm wondering, you're deep in this. Was that a moment or was that just kind of like, yeah, yeah, there's going to be more of that and it's kind of not a big deal? Definitely a huge moment. Uh, and they're actually a customer of ours as well. So we get to work closely with them oh. on that. I can tell you, you know, I've got a pretty extensive network in sort of the industrial space and the energy space and, you know, CEOs and boards around the world absolutely that was a seminal moment for them i mean it wasn't just them but their bankers their lawyers their mm. you know all their advisors were just lit up on what does this mean for us let's go through exercises on how to you know everything from how do we get more defensive to make sure this doesn't happen to us to how do we yeah. get more aggressive on our decarbonization to get more proactive on this yeah unprecedented and and also at the same time shell lost a landmark case in a dutch court right forcing them to decarbonize but it's really, it just comes back to, you know, I wrote about this in NASDAQ two years ago, that the domino had already fallen. As soon as those LPs started pushing for that pressure, everybody else started having to do the same thing. And engine number one and the Exxon proxy campaign was really the public markets manifestation of that. But it's been happening in private markets even, even much sooner and faster than that. How big a player is BlackRock in all this? I mean, obviously, they're the world's largest asset manager and Larry Fink, their CEO, has come out publicly and said lots of very kind of forceful stuff and including, you know, I think his prediction that the next thousand billionaires or unicorns or whatever were going to be climate tech startups, climate tech founders. They have said, you know, they're taking ESG and CO2 emissions into account and they, I can't remember how much they manage, trillions of dollars. If they're actually following through on that, that feels like a very, very big deal. Yeah, that was another similar moment when it was the January uh, 2020 letter. He came out and basically the big statement was climate risk is financial risk. And that's really the underpinning of his whole thesis. And, and he's correct. Um, now, the speed at which they can do that, you know, given the $8 trillion under management, as you pointed out, varies immensely by investment type, portfolios, all of that sort of stuff. I think most important to watch there is some of the, uh, first, him being vocal about it, right? It's forcing others yeah. to be catching up. And the second piece is sort of non-obvious. Um, you know, he's recently been pushing changes to governance and voting structures that allows all of BlackRock investors to directly vote in governance on investments held by BlackRock funds, which wasn't it wasn't possible before. 
what that means is he's sort of liberating the vote that was traditionally held by asset managers back into the individual shareholders. Held by BlackRock. Exactly. And the most influential uh, you know, voice that they have is, of course, to be in the boardroom yeah. in the annual shareholder meeting, voting for climate propositions and rulings and those sorts of things. Over this next, I don't know, six to 12 months, is are there other kind of things coming down the pike that we should be thinking about as we talk about this transition? Either, I don't know if it's regulation or you know, another potential proxy fight out there or something that is kind of could be another catalyst or another because it does feel like this is a a long slow awakening that requires many seminal moments <laughs> i don't know if there's other things regulatory or otherwise that you're kind of keeping an eye on at, you know say through the rest of this year or early next year the sec comment period ending actually this week for the climate disclosure proposal is a big one so of course timed with the midterms it'll be interesting to see what happens there given that you know the bigger climate bill didn't pass uh, the administration's agenda i would expect that to come back in some other form regardless of who wins it may just be smaller and more energy focused just given what's going on in the ukraine so that's a big one and then i would absolutely expect that carbon credit markets and offsets will be regulated sooner rather than later you know if you look at what the sec is doing in crypto it took a long time to regulate crypto. Yeah. And that's mostly because there just wasn't that much institutional involvement. And of course, as soon as it started coming in, that changed. And in the carbon credit markets, you've got an enormous amount of institutional capital participation. So I think you're going to see regulation there sooner rather than later. And the last one's going to be really calling out all of these climate and ESG claims. Like just last week, it was announced that the SEC is investigating Goldman Sachs's ESG funds. Mm. You just had... So the CEO or chairman of one of Deutsche's asset management's businesses resigned over a greenwashing scandal. You had two weeks before that, one of the sustainable finance leaders at HSBC caught a lot of heat for statements that he made. So you're going to see a lot of sort of attention and I think you know subsequent regulation on sort of claims and the cover and credit market specifically. In other words, a lot of people's bullshit is about to be called. No doubt about it. Uh, you know, and that's that's why I love talking about disclosure because it's that adage that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing I was going to ask is that just that idea around ESG because it's become such a theme as we've been discussing. But then you have things like, and again, this kind of gets to, it kind of shows that there's this is still pretty nascent. As you had, um, I think it was Tesla fall out of the, or not get excluded from the S&P's ESG rankings, which is just... I don't know how they calculated that, but on the face of it, that just seems completely bananas. It, it is crazy, right? And that's where the definition of what is ESG and what is climate is so subjective right now. Yeah. Like you mentioned at the beginning, you've got a ton of people and record amount of climate tech people coming on. I mean, if you do a little bit of scratch and sniff on probably half of the companies in the startup world that say they're climate tech, Many of them had nothing to do with climate 12 months ago and have just found something to now claim that they're helping be more sustainable. Yeah, it feels a little dot com in that sense of just like, just throw a dot com at the end and you can raise a bunch more money than you. Or it was like uh, AI four years ago. AI and then blockchain and then yeah, digital transformation, <laughs> all those buzzwords. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's all coming crashing down before our eyes, which is kind of amazing. Hopefully to nobody's shock. No, exactly. Exactly. By the way, is that a Boba Fett helmet behind you? Uh, close. That is the Mando. Uh, of course. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. 
That was close. That was close. You were very close. Um, before I let you go, I like to ask this question. What was the worst, your worst day of work? And it doesn't have to be Persephone. It could be like your worst day ever at work. My worst day ever at work. Wow. I would have to think long and hard about that because I just don't think about failure in the way most people do. Um, <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't know. I like, I could not give you an answer because I just don't think about. What do you mean you don't think about failure? Because that in itself is interesting. Well, I, I guess I think about it, just not the same way. I, I sort of tell people my brain kind of works like game theory a little bit in that I'm just thinking about the potential outcomes and it's any decision you make is just a matter of probability. It's either going to work out one way or another. And if you choose something that's lower probability, higher risk, but higher reward, then I don't see that as failure. I just see that as a calculated sort of approach. Um, you know, For me, the only failure on my part that I would truly see as failure would be you know, compromising my values or my ethics. And, you know, I'm happy to report I've never done that. So anything short of that, I think is just part of the learning journey. Right, right. How many people are you now, Persephone? 310 this week. And are you all out there? Are you, uh, are you part of the kind of work from anywhere revolution or how's it, how's it work? Yep. Fully remote, uh, 13 countries across the employee base. Most we have in one area is here in Tempe, Arizona, which is about 35, but I don't know, you might have 10 people at any given moment in the office. Right. How's that work? Is it fine? I mean, I presume there's some limitations or things that don't work quite as smoothly. Wouldn't trade it for the world. Just I'd absolutely proselytize. Like there's a component of innovation, which is nearly impossible to replicate unless you're in person. And so, you know, we have regular in-person gatherings on an almost quarterly basis by department. You know, but then I do think, you know, the follow-up just heads down work that you create out of stuff like that is way more efficient uh, individually or, uh, you know, remote. Cool. Well, I think those are all my questions, uh, unless you think there's anything we missed or should be thinking about as we kind of barrel toward this new world of carbon accounting of, of everything and the brave new world of ESG. Well, I now have to think about the worst day I've had at work, which is going to yeah. bug me for the rest of the day now. But uh, I mean, because I was thinking if you're like... I know people who have opened restaurants. Restaurants feel like they kind of lend themselves to some pretty harrowing experiences. That is, uh, yeah, that is a hard, hard business. Uh, I, I love to eat, but my God, that is a hard business. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, uh, yeah, uh, your patrons getting sick from your food would be a horrible day. Thankfully, we never had that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, cool. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's a fascinating story. And um, yeah, I wish you luck. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Kintaro. I want to thank you all, as ever. I know I thank you guys every episode, but I really do appreciate it. Thank you for listening, for the ratings and reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors, etc. I'll be back next week with another one. In the meantime, I will be writing, I think I'm writing about crypto this week. So do check out the paper at thetimes.co.uk. And it will feature one of our former guests, Alex Mashinsky from Celsius. So do check that out. Celsius has run into a world of pain. They've frozen withdrawals. People are talking that it might go into administration. It's not looking great. Um, it's been kind of, it's been a rough week for them and really the entire crypto world. So do check that out. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. And that is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend and we will talk to you very, very soon. Be well.
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.